0: Welcome, everyone, to the seventh episode of the Global Guessing Weekly podcast, the podcast on all things forecasting and geopolitics. This week, myself and Andrew are joined by two major people in the forecasting space, Pavel Atanasov and Regina Joseph of Pitho.io. Uh, Regina has been with Global Guessing in the past. She joined us for an interview back in January, uh, but we are especially excited to have both of them on today to talk about the results from one of their recent projects, Human Forest. For a little bit of background, uh, Regina and Pavel are part of Pitho. Pitho is a two-person boutique R&D shop for forecasting, where they use decision science to improve predictions and decision makings. They've spent a decade working on this research and have won three IARPA forecasting tournaments and two NSF awards. They are co-inventors on a patent and a patent pending project and are the co-authors on numerous publications. Today, they are here to talk to us about their most recent project, which is the subject of their pending patent, Human Forest. Uh, Human Forest is a new system that they've been developing, which combines data-driven base rate automation and collective human insight to deliver on key objectives on which machine algorithms and human forecasters can fall short. Human Forest is designed to provide more accurate valuations, forward-looking risk management, better resource allocations, and multipliers to progress in innovation. Welcome to the show, Regina and Pavel. Um, it would be great if you guys could give us a little bit more insight into the background um, and the concept of Human Forest, as well as Pitho itself. Welcome.
1: Great. Thanks so much. It's it's great to be back. Uh, it's nice to see you both. And uh, thanks so much for having us uh, having us both on, so that we can uh, talk to you about what we've been working on for the last couple of years. And uh, so so Human Forest actually. Uh, it's a really good example of how Pavel and I work at a 50-50 level because it really combines very much equally uh, ideas that I have with, with ideas that Pavel has and, you know, that that's how we kind of make our, our work. Um, so So the origins of human force began when Pavel and I were members of the IARPA uh, HFC or hybrid forecasting competition research program was underway and so we served on a team um, that was at uh, uh, was based at University of Southern California's Information Sciences Institute and so um, because the nature of that research program was focused on hybridizing uh, uh, the best uh, components of uh, human predictive accuracy with uh, machine model uh, uh, predictions, and to figure out what's the most, what is the optimal way to hybridize those two things into a whole that would be more predictively accurate than than each uh, uh, individual factor. And so, one of the things that 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 I had been thinking about and developing for uh, that program was the idea of the elicitation platform or forecasting platform, if you will, um, there are many different ways you can build those things. And and as I think Pavel and I have shown over the last 10 years, um, you can organize these so that they do different things. Uh, um, And so so what I was interested in, in a hybridized forecasting environment was being able to uh, uh, reduce the cognitive burden on the individual forecaster. Right. Forecasting is not an easy thing. It's it it requires a lot of effort. And so so I, I think the goal in building an optimal forecasting platform has a lot to do with reducing the cognitive burden to enough of a degree that the user is getting useful information. And so one of the key most important bits of useful information in a predictive sense is the base rate um if you are especially if you're in a timed tournament where questions may have a very short period of time to elapse uh being able to get to that initial forecast as quickly as possible is the coin of the realm and and so 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 what i was interested in was in developing uh, a user interface user experience or UIUX, um in which that uh, uh that element is is actually baked into the user experience so, so, um, so that 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 became a big part of what we were doing uh, 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 on the HFC team that we were on the Sage team, and uh, and so that uh, uh, obviously became part of the basis of what became Human Forest. And so, so I'll let Pavel take over the wh- where we started to kind of layer the ideas that we were having about how to how to elicit uh, uh, better forecasts.
2: Right. Yeah. So it. At HFC, so what what Regina was uh, uh, the idea that Regina developed was that it may be useful to just show people just some historical information without showing them a model, right? Uh, because you know people wouldn't be able to access it otherwise, or it would take them more time. So by by shortening that process, you can add a lot of value. And that related to what. Kahneman and Tversky have spoken for a long time about the idea that there's an inside view and the outside view and the outside view is basically you know thinking about base rates right but thinking through base rate is non-trivial because you have to first come up with a reference class and there's many reference classes that you can come up with like if you think of an election is it is the right reference class you know let's say the last 10 presidential elections in the US is it all the elections in the world there's many reasonable reference classes you can come up with and so uh what we became interested in is like how good are people at picking up like reference classes that give them good base rates um we know to some extent algorithms sort of do that right um the random forest algorithm basically looks at different random subsets of the data and tries to come up with a basically a reference class they call it a classification tree and then any one tree maybe you know has only partial information and it's noisy and not very accurate but when you combine all these trees into a forest you get a good prediction and so um you know our thought was like well can humans do that like what if a bunch of humans build their classification tree or reference classes and then we combine that into a forest and that would be the human forest um and we had just met uh, with, with, with a friend of mine from college who had developed a random forest model for a clinical trial um, development. and I had been working on, on, on a project like that with Jonathan Kimmelman trying getting experts to predict trials on oncology and, uh, and neurology. And so we thought, well what if we combine all the ideas together? all the work that they had done on the modeling, all the work that we are doing on hum, uh, you know, hybridizing forecasting and explore like how do we get better at forecasting clinical trials and how do, how do we teach people to get better at picking up uh, re- reference classes that are predictably useful. Um, and so there's the applied part and there's just the, the, the basic psychology of, of forecasting and how people relate to the outside view. And that was very attractive to us, and it was attractive to um, the National Science Foundation as well, and we were able to get two grants to uh, to study this.
1: And I think it, it what was also really interesting to, to both of us was, at the time, uh, you know, I, I think that when HFC began, it was really at the at the beginning of the uh, of the trajectory upwards in this kind of monolithic idea that machine learning and machine models will always be better, uh, especially in terms of predictive analytics. Um, you know, people were observing uh, the IBM Watson story. So, you know, Watson itself was claiming that Watson was a predictive um, uh, uh, system. And so, but you know, in our experience, you know, directly the research that we were experiencing, we were seeing in action just how, uh, uh just how, uh, well, uh, poorly uh, these models were performing in arenas that were um, situations where the there was a low data environment. In other words, mm-hmm. it just didn't have very many use cases upon which you could train the model effectively. So in those kinds of environments humans were really doing much better. They were outperforming the machine models and in many cases by a lot. And these were models that were developed by people who are you know, considered some of the best modelers out there. So, so we were coming into the conversation with Swala at the time that you know, he was saying, yes, we've developed this random forest model at Johns Hopkins, which was the university that he was with at the time. Now, now he's at AU, uh, American University. And so we were having uh, we were having lunch in DC, and 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 uh, we were saying, oh, it'd be great for us to work on something together. And so that competitive edge uh, uh, sort of came into the conversation where we thought, well, we've seen in HFC humans with machines and how that was working. What would have been really interesting was humans versus machines, you know, that mm-hmm. and 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 to really kind of in do two things one which is kind of challenge that status quo thinking about how machine model machine machine learning you know is is the answer uh uh in 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 prediction uh when we were observing in real time this is not the case uh in in in, in very specific arenas and also two to be able to test in real time this kind of um, uh, you know, head to head competition, make it fun, make it interesting. Um, and uh, uh, it was a it was a kind of perfect opportunity for us.
0: So if I have the sort of the structure correct of sort of human forest, it deals with sort of how can we combine sort of base rate information and sort of these um, technological sort of systems as well as cognitive training for individuals to elicit uh, better forecasts. So you guys created your own sort of forecasting platform where I imagine um, you would present a question and then they would have easily accessible base rates available to them, which they could use, they could manipulate perhaps and sort of of start off with a base rate, but then sort of reach their own conclusion by inputting um, other information, um, and then you sort of did that in a in in a tournament against these machine models. Is that a sort of a, a fair?
1: That's part of it. Uh, the, the The way to think of it conceptually is, you know, that the the elicitation platform itself is just one component. So so we talk a lot about you know what we see at, at Pitho as this what we call a five step supply chain of predictive accuracy the elicitation platform is just the fourth step, right? There, there are other steps, you, you, you have to get all five of these steps working well with each other to, to, to get uh, the, the optimal uh, predictive performance that, that, that you can squeeze out of it, right? So um, <clears throat> the elicitation platform is one part of it. I think the best way to think about what we're trying to achieve with Human Forest, and and this actually came a lot from the cybersecurity research work that I was doing in the Netherlands. This is separate from Pitho, um, uh but but one of the things that I was seeing was um, people have databases that they have to work with, especially in the you know when you're doing cybersecurity, uh, <clears throat> the first tiers of analysts are basically using automated systems. That sit on top of these very large, very complex databases. That information is constantly being added to, and people who are trained in this still find it very difficult to extract predictively useful information out of these large databases. Now, cybersecurity is one arena, but this is also applies to arenas like the life sciences world. Uh, you know, clinical trials, uh, uh, the, the 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 database that we work with, Biomed Tracker. You know. Uh, uh, um, <clears throat> informa, which is the company that owns, you know, these massive commercial databases. I mean, Andrew, I'm sure you're familiar with LexisNexis. I mean, you, you know, you work in these kinds of environments where whether it's legal or, or life sciences or cyber or energy. Usually, if you're operating that system as an analyst and you have to make predictions or forecasts, you have to work with these uh, large commercial databases that are quite expensive. Um, the problem is, is that, um, and what we've been hearing, and this was what I was hearing in the cyber research was that the bigger and more data that these, uh, databases have, the more difficult it is to work with them. So part of what we were trying to envision human forest as, and, and, and using, uh, a clinical trial database, uh, as a sort of experimental example to test our hypothesis is that there has to be a way to get into these data sets and extract the predictively useful information more effectively. Uh, we see, you know, so so that's how we sort of came to describe um, human force as an information scaffold. If you if you think of you know uh, big databases like Lexis ne- uh, for example, as a as a as a skyscraper, you know, think of human forces as the scaffold that can wrap around that skyscraper. And allow you more effective egress and ingress to the exact locations you need. Um, And and that's how we, um, you know, there's certainly yes the elicitation platform has a lot of bells and whistles to it. But the overall system and method, the approach that we have is about incorporating everything from you know, the right types of questions, because that determines you know, what happens on the elicitation platform, um, You know, what types of crowds you want to put together, what, who, who are on those expert panels, and who should be on those expert panels. Because we do know more and more with every passing year something about the differences between subject matter experts versus skilled forecasters Versus lay people, especially in technically dense information environments. So that's very interesting to us. So, so you've got uh, step one from our perspective is the the people who are who are the people in your human crowds. The second being the questions. You know, what kinds of rigorous, um, you know, questions are you developing and using? Because that, you know, will that has a direct uh, role on <clears throat> or a direct impact on how uh, useful the forecasts are. Uh, the third of course is the training and then the fourth is the elicitation platform how are you extracting that information out of the forecasters and the fifth of course being the aggregation how do you put all of those individual human estimations together in a way that really optimizes uh, the utility of those estimations and so uh, um, so the 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 bigger picture is that scaffold concept. There are lots of databases out there. They're not easy to use. And given that more and more of us have to work through conditions of uncertainty, having having a method by which you can use those databases, but have some layer and overlay that sits on top of them that allows you to make better judgments and decisions because you are extracting those base rates, You're also getting visualizations, you know, the the kind of bird's eye view of what the data means and also giving you the facility by which you can actually uh, adjust uh, uh, adjust away from the base rate. If you think, you know, the base rate captures what's inside that database, but, you know, as a human being, I'm getting much more recent information that might actually be additive you know, to what's stored or what's locked in that database. And that's what makes, you know, human crowdsourcing effective. It's that ability to update uh, 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 very quickly, um, you know, new information as it comes in. That That's harder to do uh, with a machine model.
2: And just to make it very specific about, uh, to make it very concrete what we're asking. So we might ask, will drug A uh, successfully proceed from phase two to phase three. And, and then what the user can do is to say, all right, well, what are all the cancer drugs in phase two, right? And maybe there's a thousand examples, but how about for this particular type of cancer, right? And there's maybe only 200, but how about, you know, if it's a biologic drug and it's a lead indication, right? And then you refine the reference class so it gets more and more specific to, to the case it had But it also becomes smaller. So then the forecasters have to make a trade-off between something that's more specific and something that's larger. And eventually when they get to that reference class, it might say, okay, well, we got 50 trials and 20 of them were successfully proceeded from phase two to phase three. So your base rate is 40%. And then you can take the slider and say, okay, well, I think 40% is too little because I just found some new information that's not in the database. And I really think it's like 52%. And that's what you submit. And then when a bunch of forecasters get through that process, that's what forms the human forest.
0: And so just real quick, two questions on that front. Um, The first one is sort of like a a, a larger question, which is how do you go about um, gathering all that sort of data for base rates? Are you sort of scraping through academic papers and press releases trying to find like a keyword like this is a monoclonal antibody, this is a something mm-hmm. else, this is related to this type of cancer, and then you're doing it that way? Because I, I would guess the other way, if it's thousands of drugs, you're not going to be opening up and reading each paper. That would take forever, right?
2: No, that's, that's where a biomed tracker is really useful because they put that information in a very organized Way there's there's that which is proprietary in clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, you have to submit information uh, to clinicaltrials.gov when you run a trial, and so in that way it's very useful. There is information out there, and the question is, how do you get from like you know a thousand possible predictor variables to like maybe twenty or thirty that humans can handle, right? And for that it's it it helps to have to have done some statistical analysis and modeling at at the first place and then hand it off to human forecasters to see if, if they can do better than, than the model you just built. Uh, and, and,
1: and in the case of, of human force specifically, we also have to deal with the level playing field issue. Um, A lot of the parameters that we have to use in setting up the the taxonomy uh, uh, for for the elicitation platform, you know, we have to take our cues from the random forest model, because the random forest model was already in existence, you know, um, at at the time that we were having the conversation uh, with them. So, so, so they had already been using biomed tracker. So uh, to some degree, it came down to, well, we're starting already with the machine model, and then it was up to us, you know. So, so Swala and 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 his colleagues uh, uh, were were completely on on team machine model, and it was just me and Pavel on the you know team human side. And so, but what we were looking at was um, <clears throat> given the fact that the random forest model had already been built. So, we already knew uh, uh, what were some of the key components that we would have to extract out of the biomed tracker. Data set. So, so, it wasn't a complete, you know, we're just pulling out of, you know, the thousands of categories that already exist. We already had some guidelines. Um, what we tried to do was to try to structure that in a way that, um, and, and, and we'll see this, I think, a lot more in the second leg of our research, um, but, but looking at ways in which um, our work now is starting to have some influence on how the random forest model is being built. So, so they're going to go through an optimization process now. And so what we're looking at is, yeah, how we we've already seen now the results of, of the first leg. So, um, you know, the, 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 the key is we we've got a, a a sort of baseline benchmark, you know, for how the, the, the ontology that we already set up for the specific environment tracker database works. We see how that works for the random forest model. And so now what we're trying to focus on is, okay, well, how do we optimize that? Especially just given we were very lucky because we're dealing with in real life pandemic situations, you know? So, and that had a, a very clear and direct effect on, you know, our our, our, our results.
3: So Regina, you just touched on, um, you know, forecasting in a pandemic environment. Um, and Pavel, you mentioned, you know, forecasting these oncology therapy results. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the challenges, you know, of, of forecasting each of those sort of discrete um, areas of science? And then, um, you know, were there any similarities in some of the challenges that you saw between the two?
0: And then if, if I just may f- throw in, like, how is it sort of shifting from focusing on sort of the cancer oncology aspect to the sort of pandemic uh, vaccine nature?
2: Yeah. So the short way of describing it is cancer trials are usually slow trials and COVID trials are much faster, right? So in a cancer trial, you, you want to know if it's going to be successful and you don't so much care if it reports results in a month or in six months. But in a global pandemic, you not only want to know if this vaccine would work, but also when it would work when you get the results and when you learn if it works so that you can apply it, right? You know, people describe it as a race against time, like a, a race between the different variants of the virus and, and and the vaccines, and as well as treatments. And so for that, it was very important to have what we call time-specific uh, questions, which is like, you know, will this trial proceed Let's say from phase two to phase three, or phase three to regulatory submission, by a given date. Um, and when we started the when we started the experiment, we started in September. So there was there was a political question also if there will be announcements before the election, and uh, and in general there were many questions like before the next wave comes, do we have vaccines? And so that's where having those. Um, time-specific question is very useful. It's also very useful because at the end, you have a definitive answer, right? The effect either happened or didn't happen. With with questions that are open-ended about time, well, the tournament is over and the trial hasn't proceeded from phase two to phase three, but it might still proceed, right? And so you don't have a definitive uh, answer. And so we did what what we call probabilistic scoring, which is basically to say, or our best guess is that there's still 30% chance that this trial will proceed and will score forecasters, you know, against that probabilistic benchmark. With time specific, at the end of the tournament, you know, we knew what what were the yeses and what were the noes. So it was different in approach, and as well as the underlyings or clinical importance of of each set of trials.
0: Were there changes to like the framework though that that were were done when you had to do these timed forecasts? Did you sort of bring in base rates in terms of not only completion but sort of time to completion? Um, and sort of like yeah. to what degree, right? you're talking about politics earlier, like to what degree mm-hmm. was like the operation warp, warp speed timeline used as, for instance, uh, a, a, a possible base rate because if if you were to look at what they had given out, it, it actually wasn't too far off in terms of at least the overall um, scope of things. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the, I, I think it would be fair to say that, you know, with regards to the actual timing that was happening around the development of the vaccines uh, and the treatments for COVID, that was less of our concern. And, and, and also, if you just look at the general timing of what was going on, um, you know, in the first leg of the research, um, you know, at that point, things were, you know, still kind of in, in, in the first phase of lockdown, right? So, so when we were building out the, the, the elicitation platform and the experimental design and how we were going to put all of that together, the things that we were focused on at that point in time, you know, we weren't even focused on what was happening, you know, whether or not those vaccines or treatments would, would actually occur. In general, what we first needed to deal with was because our initial focus was on the slower moving trials for oncology, neurology, and cardiovascular diseases. You know, we were kind of in the middle of a scramble of, well, you know, given the nature of the pandemic, all of those trials are going to get pushed to the back burner. Those trials are going to slow down completely. So the research that we would be doing in that area, well, you know, if you've got a six month tournament you know, during that six-month period of elapse, if, if it's happening in the middle of a pandemic, it's so unlikely, you know, that we would see any kind of a resolution of questions that are in the non-COVID-related uh, clinical trial sphere that it, it, the, the questions effectively become like 90-10 questions, you know, and so they are kind of rendered useless. So at that point, I mean in the beginning when we started doing the experimental design for me it was uh as 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 the question generator it was particularly important to understand uh how we were going to make the forecasters comfortable with the idea of a probabilistic resolution versus a deterministic resolution especially for elite forecasters there's so much wiggle room you know in what goes into a probabilistic resolution that we knew, and especially, you know, given the fact that, you know, we had a bunch of fellow super forecasters, you know, uh, uh, making forecasts here, Um, you know, we know them well enough that they would poke holes through that very, very quickly and very easily. So, so part of what I was thinking was already, even before the pandemic lockdowns began, was thinking about how are we going to work more deterministic types of questions in here, right? We, we can't just be thinking about the probabilistic resolutions because that exposes the research. And then when the pandemic slammed, you know, then it was, uh-oh, okay, now we have to think pragmatically, you know, about how do we continue to work in the uh, doing this research when, you know, a, a big chunk of the clinical trials that we're looking at probably are are not going to proceed. What's, you know, uh, filling into that vacuum is everything COVID related, which gives us a perfect inflection point for time specific questions, because there would be a much higher likelihood that you would get a status quo change during the period of elapse in the forecasting tournament. And so that really became the stepping stone towards developing uh, a survival analysis, uh, 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 uh the 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 two variants of the platform are specific. One is probabilistic. One is time specific. So the time specific variant um, uh, allowed us to do a different type of analysis than what was being done in the non-time specific variant, and even better that that could still allow us to maintain a level playing field with the machine learning model because there was actually a random survival forest model. Uh, uh, that that could be integrated into the existing model that you know we were competing against. So so it worked out really well.
0: Great. So um now we've talked sort of about what Human Forest was. Um you guys recently presented uh, a poster about your uh, initial results, and I was wondering if you could provide us with sort of a brief overview of the top level results that you guys were able to achieve with this time specific Human Forest system.
2: Yeah. So, so again, those uh, those analyses focused on twenty eight questions that were specific to COVID and that had time specific deterministic resolution. So, at the end, we knew which trials progressed and which ones did not. And the the high level comparison is the random survival model, model versus the different human methods. And uh, what was very important is uh, that all the human forest, uh, all the human methods. Including the control, but especially the human uh, forest methods outperform the machine model by approximately 40%, so 40% reduction in in Breyer scores. Within the human methods, uh, there were there were somewhat smaller differences where the human forest method tended to do well. Uh, so the outperformance relative to the random forest model was up to 48%, and uh, for for the Regular control polls that where people didn't get get to work on the uh, on the Human Forest platform, it was by about 32 percent, and those differences were more um, accentuated for for questions where we allowed fewer forecasters uh, to make to make predictions. So when we have only a couple of forecasters, it's very very helpful to use Human Forest, and when you have more forecasters, the differences are somewhat smaller, but 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 still. Uh, but still important, you know, more than 10 percentage points in a reduction in Brier score.
0: So you talked about this reduction in Brier score. Could you quickly give just a brief uh, like explanation of what Brier scores were, and if you guys were using um, the classical Brier score out of one, or if you using the Good Judgment Brier score out of two? Yeah,
2: yeah, we were using the Good Judgment Brier score out of two. So zero is best possible forecast. Uh, two is the worst possible forecast. Point five is is the is the score you get if if you make a 50 50 forecast on a on a binary question whichever outcome occurs and it's basically a squared error measure of the difference between reality uh, you know for deterministic questions 0 or 1 and and your probabilistic forecast so you want to be you know you want to be as close to zero as possible and so uh if if let's say um if one of the models is, let's say, at 0.25, um, a 40% reduction means that you go from 0.25 Breyer score to 0.15, which is uh, which is approximately where the random survival forest model ended up 0.25. And the, the best human forest methods uh, ended up just, just below 0.15. So that was just over a 40% reduction in Breyer scores
0: great and can so now we actually want to dig into sort of some of these findings and get um well yeah just a little bit deeper in terms of what you guys found um mm-hmm. starting off on the top if you guys can uh, if you guys are watching the podcast on YouTube sure. you guys can actually see some of the results and so this mm-hmm. dotted line up here this is uh what the random survival forest model got you said it was point right. uh 25 if i'm not mistaken that is roughly the equivalent of forecasting a 65% confidence on a question and getting it Mm -hmm. correct. That, to me, seems actually surprisingly low for um, a machine model for this, especially for Mm -hmm. a field that has such, you know, well-defined base rates, right? If we were talking Mm -hmm. about geopolitics, where, you know, trying to find that reference class is, in many ways, like in an art, it, it, it would seem like forecasting phase two and phase three trials would be mm-hmm. more on the science side of things, but the right. the random survival forest models did quite poorly. Do you guys have a sort of hypothesis as to why that's the case?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, this is not an uncommon uh, experience. I mean, we, we had seen this before in our research where the models uh, just simply, uh, uh, the, the, the availability of the data only allows the model to be, you know, good to, the, the, there's kind of a, a cap, really. Um, and so what we were seeing was that, you know, uh, I think that most people probably, uh, they assumed that the, the accuracy or the validity of a model most people don't know what the rates of accuracy are in the first place. I mean, I, I've worked with Watson and I know the thresholds that were considered acceptable for accuracy um, uh, for for the use of Watson, which, I mean, I would not consider acceptable, you know, as a human forecaster, no way, no how. You know, so so um, I think that uh, generally speaking, um, with a machine model returning an accuracy of about sixty five percent, you know that that's that's generally accepted as pretty good performance. Mm-hmm. and yeah. so so um, uh, f- for us to be able to see that as, okay, you know we I have to say that for, for me, when I looked at that prior uh, score, I thought, yeah, that that's about in line with what I was expecting. So, so, uh, and, and obviously, uh, uh, previously, what we knew about that particular model in terms of its prior performance.
0: And then sort of returning back to this sort of chart here real quick, what I found to be particularly interesting um, is looking at all forecasts, um, the best result was actually just those that had base training rather than uh, full training. Um, is there, do you guys have sort of a hypothesis, right, you would think that getting the full training would, you know, produce the lowest sort of brier scores um, do you think that there was something in the full training that was that was originally suited for the oncology that didn't make the best transition for time was it chance or because we're dealing with low brier scores is this you know just yeah no we have very
1: we, we you know we have two pretty pretty uh, you know we have two hypotheses uh, in short you know uh, uh bo- both of them really deal with the issue of cognitive burden um, you know, there is a point at which, so <clears throat> starting with the technical side of the cognitive burden, uh, issue again, to maintain a level playing field between the machine model and our human system, uh, we had to make sure that, um, the questions, uh, that were being applied were, were the same, you know, could be triggered by the same, could be resolved by the same triggers. So, so, um, In that respect, um, the base rate data uh, that is in the public domain, you know, there are lots of papers that uh, 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 mentioned this this information, the base rate data was already incorporated into the random forest model. So we had to ensure that our control as well as our um, experimental conditions uh, all had access to the same basic information upon which the random forest model was operating. So so uh, so just that core base rate data that's in the public domain, that's what was given to the control polls as, as part of the base training. Um, that's very short to have to go through. It's basically a table, you know with a series of numbers and uh, a bunch of columns depending upon what particular indication and what phase transition. So, so you could look at that in the space of about three or five minutes and get a pretty decent handle on you know what the base rates are. Training, however, is you know a 20, 22 minutes, uh, a, a 22 minute experience um, that builds on the base rate data by giving you additional information on how to be a better forecaster and then contextualizing the base rate data with the how to forecast information. And so what what we think in addition to the nature of the base rate data was already just a a kind of immediate benchmark for everybody to work with was that in the middle of a pandemic, people are already super stressed. I mean, that, that was a real issue for us in the experimental environment. People are tired, people have fatigue. And so asking people to go you know, the, the, the difference between spending five minutes on a training module versus spending 20 minutes on a training module in the real world, you know, if there was no pandemic, I think that we would probably see better numbers, but in a pandemic environment where every minute counts, the difference of, you know, 20 minutes can make a big difference. And especially when you're talking about, you know, for example, say female forecasters who have to work a double shift, right? So, so there were real world, uh, possible reasons as to why we were seeing that. And, you know, and also, of course, the technical aspect of it, which is that you know, just, just very simply, um, base rates, uh, the, the, the base rate that you're working with uh, at the control level, the random forest level, you know, it, it, it's enough to get you where you need to go. If you've got a lot of people you know, and you're taking the average of that, um, then it's, it's pretty good, right? It's, it's pretty good. Is it as good as it can be? No, but I think we were working with some uh, real world situation uh, uh, issues that, that made that a little bit more complicated. And, um, and, and, and also too, we just had to conform to certain strictures. If, if we were in an environment where we had a control where they did not get the base rate data, I'm pretty sure um, you know, that there would be a much bigger disparity between the control you know, and everybody else. And I, I think it's important to remember that um, I, you know if you think about uh, uh, the, the the number of people in the full training you know was was half of that you know in the base training. So I think that there were uh, definite reasons why we saw not as quite, you know, not as expected uh, a a difference between full training versus base base training as we saw. Um, I think if we were under different experimental conditions, if we were not in a pandemic, if if, if we did not have to supply the control with any kind of training material, I think we'd see something quite different.
3: So relative to the random survival forest baseline that, that Clay had brought up recently, um thank you uh you know you you saw a much deeper reduction in briar scores with additional forecasters and with both uh human forecast or human forest models rather like both the approaches um do you have any thoughts as to why that was the case and is it sort of an indication that uh, that machine human like hybridization um is sort of fulfilling a lot of the functions of you know pulling out the wisdom from the crowd uh, which is part of the goal
2: right so um uh, we should note that you know the random forest model doesn't take any data from forecasters, so it's you know if 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 you had the, the figure, it would just be like a flat line at uh, right around 0. 0.25. Uh, the other methods, like control polls, where people didn't didn't have the Human Forest platform versus Human Forest, that's that's crowdsourcing, right? That depends on crowd members, and you know the the the, the smallest crowd you can have is a crowd of one. So that's not really a crowd, that's just one person. And uh, it turns out that when you give that one person um, information about base rates and allow them to play with the data, they, they do much better on average than if you don't. Um, and then as you average more and more forecasters, uh, the difference become a little bit smaller, but, uh, but you know, still remain intact. So it may be like 20, 22% difference for just one person and 10, 12% when you have five or more. Um, and uh, that's what the hybridization is meant to do, right? By showing people data, they become more stable, but still having more than one person, having even a small crowd is still helpful in, in reducing noise and, uh, and improving accuracy.
0: And just to go back to this sort of like result, um, I was wondering um, why you felt that sort of the human forest with just one forecaster on the question was getting the same results as the control polls. Um, Mm Because that, right, because then after once you start adding forecasters, you start seeing a a difference between the two. Um, Mm -hmm. But for the audio listeners, um, when there's just one forecaster on the question, uh, the control forecasters do as well as the. Baseline just adjusted human forest model.
2: Yeah, uh, we think that that's that's because some forecasters were very confident uh, in sort of ignoring the base rates and going with what they thought was best. Um, And uh, when you have just a couple of forecasters doing really poorly, that go that brings up your your score right because it's square there. So like a couple of extreme errors pull up the average. And so what. What the blue line is doing is you're taking an average between each person's base rate and their adjusted forecast, where they moved the the slider away from the base rate and to where they they thought it should be. And when you take that average, you get rid of uh, the biggest, sort of most egregious errors. And it really helps, even with one person, um, to to improve accuracy on average. why so some of the forecasters basically just ignore the base rate and and uh, dated poorly and uh when you channel back that those base rates into the aggregate uh, it, it it helps it helps quite a bit so we learn something about how, how to aggregate information from that human forest environment
0: and then. Just to sort of continue on that, and I think we just briefly talked about this when talking about all the stresses of the pandemic and how that would affect mm-hmm. forecasters, but I I did some mental math. Uh, the gap here between control poles and the base rate uh, and adjusted human forest model over here is mm-hmm. about 0. 0.035 of a Briar score difference, mm-hmm. um, which on the good judgment scale i think is about 2.5 percent extra confidence in the correct direction so if you originally were to give 70 percent on a on a forecast that were to come true then that sort of briar score reduction would indicate roughly a 72.5 percent confidence Mm -hmm. or if it was going to be incorrect it'd be the other direction um which is certainly notable right um every single additional point um is is very useful to getting better accuracy in forecasts but that also seems like a, a pretty small reduction to have. And one would even think if you have all these sort of stresses of, of a pandemic in time, that an elicitation platform like Human Forest, which tries to ease the cognitive load, would actually sort of excel better. And I was wondering if you had um, any thoughts uh, in terms of sort of why you saw that result and then also how the improvements that you saw in Human Forest compared to what you did with the SAGE um, geopolitical forecasting uh, in the past.
1: Well, I think you know a a good way to start the response is really to um, if you're if you're looking at the results in 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 just a pure absolutist uh, from a from an absolutist perspective, um, you know even that alone it it's 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 not a, it's not a trivial number here. But I think it helps to start by pulling back a little bit um, so that you're looking at a, a sort of bigger picture framework because when you think about environments in which this type of estimation is critical, like, for example, in the life sciences realm where people are using this information to forecast a drug's price or you know, uh, whether or not this drug will actually succeed, right? so so, the, those the, the the that may not seem a lot, but but when you start to draw back and you're talking about an environment where you know tens, hundreds of millions of dollars are at stake here, that is a an, that that is a non-trivial uh, amount of improvement. And so so in, in in IRL, you know it matters quite a lot. Um, And so, so, but even in the context of, you know, experimentally speaking, it's still non-trivial, you know, this is still a, this is still a a good result. Um, It, it, it's, it's, I, I think, I think a lot of it has to, comes down to, you know, from, from, from which angle are you looking at that information. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, and so, uh, the way that IARPA usually sets it up when when um, they run tournaments like that is that you look in terms of percentage improvement from, you know, the control method to the to the you know new method. Government
1: right? sets a benchmark basically.
2: Mm-hmm. And and so let's say um, the, the differences were a little bit bigger, but let's just round them down and say you know if if the control was at 0.18 and then you go to 0.15. So that's, uh, that's about 17 percentage points, right? So the actual differences were closer to, you know, 18 or 19 percentage points reduction in Briar scores, right? And so that's how IARPA used to score us. And we've sort of learned that that through because that's, that's how they determine if they want to give us more funding or not, right? <laughs> um, um, and so, when you put that into perspective, right? Like maybe it's up to twenty percent at the high end, down to ten percent on the low end. If when you have more more forecasters, that's similar to um, the difference we found. So um, uh, I was a lead author on a paper in Management Science comparing prediction polls and prediction markets, and we found oh, prediction polls are about you know twelve percent better. That was significant, and so that was the point of the paper. And so, when you have 12, 15 percent an accuracy, that's already you know enough to be an important uh, you know scientific result, and and also enough to be to be practical, right? So we're somewhat somewhere in that area where you're getting to to something that's robust, but it's also just practically relevant. Uh, wh- one way to to think about it is like. Think about like a bunch of coin tosses right and you can only bet on heads right in one case you get heads 48 percent of the time the coin is weighted against you in the other case you get 52 percent of the time right it's only you know four percentage points better but in one hand if you keep playing the game many many times you'll go bankrupt in the other one you'll make a bunch of money right so sometimes a small improvement in accuracy can make the difference between you know, m- you know, making more money and just going bankruptcy and
1: billionairedom.
2: <laughs> right. So uh, now you may not be a forty-eight fifty-two, but like that's one example where uh, what seems like a small change in accuracy could actually make a difference. It gives you a little bit more of an edge, and if that holds over time, it it could be very practically relevant.
0: Um. Well, great. That is very interesting with the Human Forest. Um, What is sort of the next steps in the Human Forest project? You guys had said that you had finished sort of the first phase. What is uh, phase two going to look like?
2: Yeah, so uh, we are going to have phase two, which is a second tournament. One thing we would say is we are very much looking for participants. Um, So if you'd like, uh, uh, if you're interested in in this kind of work, uh, it will be about clinical trials again. But there'll be some some cool new features um so you can go to pitoio slash human forest once again pitoio slash human forest one word you can sign up for that Um, one thing we would do is we'll have a shorter intake so you get you know you have to spend less time between signing up for the tournament and making your first forecast which Uh, We knew was a bottleneck um, uh, in in the first uh, implementation, and so we're going to uh, take it away, make it easier, streamline it, so that people can can get quicker from signing up to you know doing forecasts, which is what uh, a lot of folks love to do. So we we'd love to have uh, you know bigger groups, test more interesting hypotheses about what works and doesn't work, and you know improve improve the science basically
0: and will it be the sort of the 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 human forest um timed uh, and in focusing on pandemic stuff or given where we are right now is it shifting back to um the drug treatment and the oncology side of things
1: it's a good it'll question it'll probably yeah it'll be a mix of both um mm-hmm. you know it, it's uh and and now uh i, I think a lot depends on timing uh, but but uh again, we seem to have found ourselves in this very unusual sweet spot of uh, asking highly pertinent forecasting questions at a time when real change is happening in real time in the middle of a forecasting tournament. So, so that, that's pretty exciting. And especially in life sciences, just given how glacially slow the pace normally is, you know, we, 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 we couldn't have asked for, for, for better timing here. So we, we think that the second leg, will also come at a very interesting time as, you know, are the trials that got postponed or or essentially frozen uh, due to the pandemic last year, how quickly do those get online? Does the speed of the uh, the, the COVID related trials, because the, 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 the speed on those trials was unprecedented. Plus also some of the decisions taken, you know, I mean, these were, these approvals were all done through emergency use authorizations. Mm-hmm. That is a highly rare contingency, you know, there isn't a lot of uh, base rate uh, information on the use of EUAs. And, you know, uh, uh, it's, it, it, you know, the the, the random forest model was not designed, you know, to be triggered to EUAs. So therefore, you know, there were rules that we created around our questions, you know, so that, you know, uh, uh, forecast resolutions could not be triggered with EUAs. So now we enter into a new phase, you know, where we're seeing the potential where we might have a, a status quo change in both the the deterministic questions, which is you know the the, the time specific COVID related infectious disease related questions, as well as the slower moving probabilistic questions, for example in the oncology space, you know that that as as those start to come back online, and we've certainly seen a lot of activity around drugs in the neurology space, so for example Eli Lilly, you know a lot of focus on their Alzheimer's drug, you know so all of that is happening now. So we could see, you know, clinical trial transitions happening in real time while we're in the middle of a tournament. So so, so that's, so that's another bit of lucky timing on our part.
0: And do you think that there's any sort of potential that like since the pandemic, that sort of future trials that normally were slow might come out at a sort of a, a more rapid pace and that, um, you know, there was like a poll recently where like people are now all for like human trials for, obviously yeah. that was a small subset nice, for vaccines, right. yeah. but... You know, moving forward, might that change sort of the landscape of um, drugs and that whole process?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the FDA uh, uh, announced, uh, I think it was like two months ago now, uh, they announced that now they are going to make it easier to approve drugs with the use of EUA and EUA-like uh, policies. You know, they're going to shorten the time. It, 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 it's not impossible now to run clinical trials without a placebo. So, so within the regulatory structure, there are already moves being taken to kind of change the clinical trial landscape that people were used to pre-pandemic. Uh, so that's certainly a factor. And you know, I think the lesson learned by a lot of pharmaceutical and especially some of the smaller startup biotechs that are you know, proliferating in, in the space, you know, that there's a, a real opportunity if if you are, first of all, if you're well capitalized enough, you know, and you have the right class of drug that you want to test in an environment where you can you know, set up uh, a, a, a trial fairly quickly. Then yeah, you know, I, I think that the I think everybody has seen that what COVID did has changed the stakes uh, on several levels of the clinical trial process.
2: Yeah, and that's an opportunity for us because every time there's a regime change, right? Every time something something happens that's external to how things have been before, that's some kind of shock, then you have to update your models, right? So the old models are just not not going to be good enough Uh, and so um, uh, for humans it's much easier to update in a new let's say regulatory environment than for the models and so there's an opportunity to outperform but on the other hand our friends who who are working on the model and and colleagues are have also learned their lessons and we expect they're going to give us a harder time this time around they'll be getting better and better so we got to keep up.
1: Yeah, we think that we think that um, you know uh, uh, the the second tournament is going to be much much harder for the human team, much harder. So so not because the questions are necessarily harder. We think the questions were pretty hard in in the first one, um, but it's 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 how much are the humans behind the random forest model? How much they learned? So again, you know, it's it's that human capacity to update quickly. <laughs> You know, that's going to make the difference. Right. So, so again, we completely stand behind, you know, the opportunity behind team humans. So
3: And just quickly before we wrap, um, and I think, you know, really important for all of our viewers, do they need any background in forecasting or life sciences to participate in this? Because I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of people interested who may not have that background.
1: Yeah, no, that's that. That's the whole idea behind this experiment. You know, we wanted to again kind of push the frontier out a little bit in what we know in the difference between expertise, you know, subject matter expertise, and predictive accuracy. You know, the the, the ability yeah. to forecast well, right? So so we have seen consistent uh, 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 results that that continue to corroborate this uh, 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 evidence that yeah. It, you know, just because you're a a subject matter expert does not make you particularly skilled at being able to uh, uh, predictively uh, uh, to to be accurate in your predictions about
0: events in your
1: domain. But people who are uh, consistently good at forecasting generally tend to be consistently good at forecasting no matter what the subject is. That ultimately is more useful in the context of a prediction environment. So so, so, so in and of itself, if you're talking about crowds, it is incredibly important for us to be able to continue to see. Does that apply um, as you go into more technically demanding environments? So, so we were looking at this in a cyber. Sec- so, my research was looking at this in the cyber st- security context. You know, we've seen this in the geopolitical and economic context. Um, uh, you know, with with. Um, The HFC hybrid forecasting competition was still about geopolitics and economics, but there was still an expectation that you know the participants who were mechanical turkers right they they weren't even. volunteers, there were people who were literally being paid, you know, to go through the effort of making forecasts, so they still had to learn something about uh, the machine models that were being involved so so a big part of what we were trying to do with human forest was to see does that continue to hold up, especially in an environment that is as complicated as clinical trials, and does that hold for people who have zero uh, uh, knowledge or backgrounds uh, or, or professional experience in the life sciences uh, or forecasting. So. Um, that's why for us it was really important to uh, create cohorts where we had subject matter experts—people who were either in the pharmaceutical industry or working in hospitals—or you know uh, researchers, <clears throat> people who were forecasters, in particular super forecasters, so skilled forecasters and people who were consistently good at forecasting—and then people who were just lay people, right? And to begin to see, okay, so who's doing well and. Uh, you know, as 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 has been as we've consistently experienced, again, the subject matter expertise is not an indicator of 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 how well you will uh, how how accurate your predictions are. Uh, it really does come down to that five step supply chain. You know, it's you know, where are you getting the base rates from? Um, you know, how well are you applying those base rates in a systematic process of making a forecast? Um, you know how well are you conducting your open source collection, right? So all of these factors um, ultimately uh, seem to continually trump the validity of subject matter expertise as the primary driver behind predictive accuracy.
2: Yeah, but that's that's the intermediate result. So that might change in the second term. Exactly. So this so, is just after so if you if if you're subject matter experts around clinical trial, we want you in. We want you. Yeah. Show them show them, that, show
0: them that they're wrong. Show them that they're wrong, yeah. you know?
2: Well, yeah. or, or they're right. We don't know, right? If exactly. you're a super forecaster, we want you. And if you're neither, we want you still very much to be a forecaster. Yeah. So uh, anyone and, and everyone is welcome. Uh, if yeah. you're Perfect. willing to put in a few hours of work into forecasting, we, we want you in. And there and are some sizable prizes. So um Come for the forecasting. Come for the prizes. Come for learning about clinical trials. For any of those reasons, uh, you're 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 very welcome. Uh, and stay
1: for the bragging rights to say that you beat the machine, right? Exactly. So so that's the Team that's human. kind of the <laughs> that's hmm. kind of the idea. But no, absolutely, I mean, we want everybody. Uh, and 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 as we've seen, it is just as likely that somebody with a zero. Uh, a life sciences experience will outperform uh you know a, a top clinical researcher that is entirely possible and to some degree we kind of expect to see that in the results to a certain degree so mm-hmm. so um so we, we we welcome everybody every flavor of participants uh, we need them
0: Well that is great everyone if you guys are interested in participating in phase two of the human forest challenge go to, pitho.io backslash human-forest and sign up. But before we let you guys go, Pavel and Regina, it was so great to have you on. There's always has to be a rapid-fire round of questions. The issue, though, is, Regina, you've been on the show before, back when it was an interview, so we can't do the same questions. And, Pavel, you will be on the podcast, spoiler alert, next week, so we can't ask the questions here for you. That's why we're going to have to do some new rapid fire questions. And this comes from actually our last episode with Sar from Root Claim, because when we got to the rapid fire section, we got into the weeds on the alien question. And so that is what we are forecasting today. The first question for both of you is what is the likelihood that Earth is currently being observed by alien life?
1: Uh, what is the what what is the probability today yes uh, observed mm.
0: aware of I keeping probably tabs
1: put at, probably put it at about ten percent hmm. and that I'm sort of my 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 expectation will probably be lower than that uh, I'll go
2: problem? with one in a thousand I'll go with point point one percent point one yeah.
0: percent why yeah, why so low yeah.
2: i think it's very unlikely that there's someone watching us and and we can't see them <laughs> um so that's, that's, yeah
0: and then the second one i'm guessing this one's but, going but, to be even what, low. Oh. a
1: clarification are we assuming like you, you know uh when we say observed you know that also means through things like satellite you know any type of uh equipment, you know that could be posi- okay so just yeah. just double check yeah yeah,
0: yeah 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 not not like just in like a ufo above looking down like mm, right right yeah. um looking from yeah, far away below yeah. i wouldn't okay.
1: go as a but
0: i'm gonna guess this is gonna get lower if even both of you but then what is the likelihood that we have already detected alien life and that uh on earth or And that there's evidence of it already.
1: Uh, well, I'm assuming that also counts for microorganisms that may have hitched a ride on a meteor or something, right? But
0: we would have to have, yes, that, that happened and that someone is aware of it.
1: Oh, okay. Um, well, in the spirit of, I mean, it's not quite independent estimation. I gave my forecast first. Pavel yeah. came second. I think Pavel should go first now, and I'll come in second. I know, I, I know what I would forecast that at it,
2: yeah. So if it's if it's about any kind of organism, I'll put it maybe at one percent. But if it's about like a sentient organism that's like watching us, then I'll it'd be, be the other way
0: around that we would have they would have come and now we're watching them in in, in essence.
2: Yeah, I would put it at uh, let's say zero point five percent.
0: Mm-hmm. So you think so? It's more likely that we've observed alien life than alien life has observed us.
2: That's right. That's right. Top of the food chain. Yeah, I would. Top agree of the with observation that. chain. I guess.
1: Uh, I would agree. Yeah. I, I I would agree with that statement. Um, and so so in light of that question, I would say yeah. I, I would I would actually um, flip. The forecast. So I would put it at something probably closer to ten percent for that question, and reduce it to five percent for the prior question.
0: Perfect.
2: Awesome. You're well, up updating in action. Yeah, go. exactly.
1: Always, always updating. Always I think, updating.
0: I think we'll have to update where where we. I don't even know what number we gave last time, but I'm going to guess it was too hot. Um, <laughs> yes. But we're You're definitely way too bullish. Way too (laughs) bullish. Um, Well, Pavel, Regina, um, anything you guys want to say at the end? Where can people find you guys? Where can they find Pitho? All of that great stuff.
1: Uh, Well, our our, our website, come come check us out. We're at uh, uh, www.pitho.io. We also have a company page on LinkedIn. And uh, uh, Pavel on Twitter is at Pavel D. Atanasov and uh uh for me on twitter i am super forecaster but without the letter e before the last r so it's kind of super forecast r er, yeah. <laughs> uh and we also have a, a a company uh we have both a company oh look there's debris hello, hello. <laughs> uh, hi this, this is
2: my cat uh, this is
3: a great way to end the interview this is awesome <laughs>
2: It's a, it's a version of the BBC guy in... Uh, exactly. so, <laughs> That's right. uh, that was unplanned. But, uh, yeah, but I assume Marina
1: is not coming into the picture and try to pull Dumbria right.
2: out of the no, room. No, not yet.
1: <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> okay. Red like
3: daddy's got the great... Oh, this was not an accident. This is definitely this, you, this a little bit this of propaganda. I think, this, this, I, I, think
2: this might have been planned. <laughs>
3: yeah, the shirt's too perfect.
2: <laughs> okay, guys. That's so funny. It was... It was Wonderful uh, talking to you. uh, Oh,
1: before I forget, uh, so I didn't mention our Twitter handle was at Pytho, P-Y-T-H-O underscore I-O. That's our our company Twitter handle. We also have one for human forest, which is at human, H-U-M-A-N forests with an S at the end.
3: Perfect. And we'll be sure to link all of those in the description of the video.
1: Fantastic. All
3: right. That's wonderful. All
0: right. Thank you guys so much. That was the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast, Episode 7. Thanks, everyone. Thanks thank so you. much,
1: guys. Great seeing yeah.
0: you guys again. Great. Yeah, you as well.